Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Good morning, it's Wednesday the 29th of November here in London. This is the Bluebeck Daybreak Hewitt Podcast. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Coming up today, Charlie Munger, the man who helped Warren Buffett build Berkshire Hathaway into an empire, has died at the age of 99. Two Fed hawks hint at a rate hold, as Bill Ackman tells Bloomberg he believes a cut is coming soon. Plus, credit who? The 81 bond market bounces back after its Credit Suisse-induced implosion. Let's start with a roundup of our top stories. The famed investor Charles Munger has died at the age of 99. As Warren Buffett's right-hand man for almost 60 years, he helped transform Berkshire Hathaway from a failing textile maker into a global conglomerate. Bloomberg Intelligence's senior analyst Matthew Palazzola remembers the pair's special relationship. For the company that they've built, you know, they talk about it actually being, quote, easy, you know, which is, uh, I guess, a very humble understatement. But I think they buy good companies, they let them run, and, you know, this machine they've built will, will go on for, you know, all time, really. Bloomberg Intelligence's Matthew Palazzola there talking about Charlie Munger's impact on Berkshire Hathaway. Between 1965 and 2022, the firm's share price rose by 3.8 million percent. That's compared to a gain of almost 25,000 percent for the S&P 500. Two of the Federal Reserve's most hawkish rate setters have signalled that they could be comfortable holding steady for now. The comments reinforcing expectations that the central bank's current hiking cycle is over. Here's what Governor Christopher Waller told the American Enterprise Institute in Washington. I am increasingly confident that policy is currently well positioned to slow the economy and get inflation back to 2%. Waller's view was echoed by fellow FYMC member Governor Michelle Bowman, who says she remains willing to support rate hikes if inflation progress stalls, but stopped short of endorsing an increase next month. Well, meanwhile, the billionaire investor Bill Ackman is betting that the Fed will begin cutting interest rates sooner than markets are predicting and policymakers are signalling. Speaking to David Rubenstein for Bloomberg, the Pershing Square founder said that such a move could happen in the coming months. I think there's a, a risk of a hard landing if the Fed doesn't start cutting rates you know, pretty soon. So you know, I think the market expects sometime middle of next year. I think it's more likely probably as early as Q1. Bill Ackman's comments are at odds with traders who are fully pricing in a first rate cut in June with the chance of a cut in May at about 80%. The activist investor also told David Rubenstein's peer-to-peer conversation that he's already seeing evidence of a weakening US economy. 
Saudi Prince Al-Walid bin Talal has sold a $450 million stake in Citigroup to his investment company Kingdom Holdings. The share purchase raises the Kingdom's stake in the bank to 2.2%. Al-Walid's relationship with Citigroup dates back to 1991 when he invested $590 million to become the bank's largest shareholder. His stature on the global investment stage has faded since 2017 when he was temporarily imprisoned without charge as part of an anti-corruption corruption drive by the Saudi crown prince. Israel says that Hamas has turned over 12 more hostages to the Red Cross. The release comes despite earlier competing claims of violations of the temporary truce in the war. That agreement has been extended by two days and is now due to end tomorrow morning. This Gaza resident says he wants the ceasefire to continue. Thank goodness, now we're in a truce, and hopefully the truce will be the long one. To be honest with you, Gaza's become uninhabitable. The voice there of someone living in Gaza. US officials are seeking to further extend the ceasefire and hostage releases. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is due to visit Israel and the West Bank later this week. Morgan Stanley is trying to overturn a French court ruling ordering it to pay 1.4 million euros in bonuses to a banker who quit the firm. The case at the Paris Court of Appeals is considering whether or not the bank can refuse to pay a bonus once an employee has resigned. The ruling could have major repercussions for other top banks in France. Lawyers for the former employee say the bonus is performance-based and that French law prevents requiring staff to stay on in order for it to be paid. And finally, London's iconic black cabs will be available on Uber for the first time. Bloomberg's Tiwa Adebayo has the details. Once sworn enemies, London's cabbies have consistently protested against Uber's presence in the city. Hundreds of black cab drivers demonstrated in London in 2014 as part of Europe-wide protests against the app, citing loss of business and safety issues. But from next year, Uber will offer customers the option of choosing a black cab and its more than 15,000 taxi drivers. Steve McNamara, General Secretary of Trade Body, the Licensed Taxi Drivers Association, criticised the plans, saying no taxi trade groups were consulted before the announcement. The move is the latest step in the company's aspirations to become a one-stop transportation destination. In London, Tiwa Adebayo, Bloomberg Radio. Now in a moment we'll be discussing the revival of a market that many had presumed dead. The riskiest banking debt, 81s are back. Switzerland's at the heart of it. We'll be speaking to our credit reporter, Tassos Vassos, about that in just a moment. But first, the investment world, of course, mourning the loss of Charlie Munger, the man who helped build Berkshire Hathaway over almost 60 years. Also king of the one-liners, mm-hmm. as we heard from so many of those investment meetings in Omaha as well. Casino in drag, he once described derivatives <laughs> Trading desks, as he talked about digital assets being partly fraud and partly delusion. You know, uh, and which think- is uh, just amazing, isn't it? What a quip. Yeah, I mean, look, he, he was somebody who was very well known to those who invested in Berkshire Hathaway, those in the investment community, but also the groupies, as he described them, those people who used to turn out for the Berkshire Hathaway AGMs in, in Nebraska every year. We've got Bloomberg's Charlie Wells with us, who's been uh, looking into this story for us. Um, an extraordinary life, Charlie, that Charlie Munger had. Um, sharp wit, ability to deliver outsized returns, too. 
Yeah, you know, in the end, it goes back to poker. I think that really is the strategy that helped make Charlie Munger so successful. So, mm-hmm. born in Omaha in 1924, famously the same hometown as Warren Buffett, he was stationed in Nome, Alaska during World War II, and that is where he learned this game. And the strategy, and I think this really informed his business strategy going forward, was sort of twofold. If you need a fold, fold early, he said. But if you have the upper hand, keep it and go even bigger. And you really see that from the time he was Mm -hmm. in World War II to the time that he died yesterday, um, looking for companies that were not just undervalued, but also excellent, that had pricing power, that really could, you know, have brand recognition. And this, you know, ranges from the likes of C's Candies, and that is a confectioner that I grew up with in California that they invested in in 1972 to the likes of Coca-Cola. Yeah, absolutely. Look, it helps that he was a math genius, right? He talked about being able to ace pretty much any maths course when he was uh, a young man. It is one, I think, of any business journalist's um, sort of uh, enormous misses if you didn't manage to get to Omaha, Nebraska and see one of those huge events with thousands of um, Berkshire Hathaway investors there just to sort of get close to that magic, that magic duo, really, of Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett. What do you think his investing philosophy was? How different was it to Buffett's? Because he's seen very much also as someone who was the foil to, to Buffett too. Yeah, one time Buffett actually called Munger the abominable no man because he, you know, said no to a lot of things, mm. and he, in a lot of ways, could keep Buffett focused. You know, Warren Buffett famously likes attention, and he's okay to be front and center. Whereas Munger, you know, from Omaha, relocates to Los Angeles and stays there. For for much of his life. Um, he actually passed away in a hospital in Santa Barbara. But as far as their philosophy, I think it was keeping each other honest. And from the moment that they met in sort of a chance encounter in Omaha in 1959, um, you know, really until the day that he died, they spoke almost daily on the phone for mm-hmm. hours. And Buffett has said that, you know, they could really finish each other's sentences. So I think it was keeping each other honest, having difficult conversations with each other, even though their views very often from investing to politics were very different. Yeah, was there ever tension in that relationship, Charlie? That's a really good point. I mean, they never had an argument, famously, but they did disagree. And there were often points when Munger would tell Buffett, you know, I'm right and you're smart. And so that's (laughs) sort of, you know, it sounds positive, but it also also sounds negative. And I think, um, you know, the ability to kind of seek out investments and to kind of like change Warren Buffett's investment strategy. So when he started out, Buffett himself said he sort of invested in what would be thought of as cigarette butt companies. So these sort of failing firms that weren't, uh, that were cheap. Mm -hmm. Um, And Munger famously helped kind of pivot that strategy, basically saying to Buffett, forget what you know about buying fair companies at wonderful prices. You need to look for wonderful companies at fair prices. Yeah. And didn't they make unbelievable returns with that strategy? I mean, over a course of close to 60 years to double the return every single year of what the S&P 500 average was is pretty staggering. Charlie, thank you so much uh, for being with us uh, this morning. Looking back at the life of Charlie Munger, of course, um, the the man who helped to build Berkshire Hathaway into the, uh, well, one of the most well-known successful firms in the US. Okay, that's Bloomberg's Charlie Wells there. The Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great ideas, 
idea and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Now to a story about risky bonds that were decimated by the implosion of Credit Suisse, but are now back. The market for European banks' junior bank debt has been on fire this month with Switzerland's UBS ending the cycle that began with the rescue deal for Credit Suisse, requiring the wipeout of billions of bonds. We've got Bloomberg credit market reporter Tassos Vossos with us now for more. Tassos, good morning to you. Why are these bonds all the rage now? Uh, good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, the um, very short um, answer to that is $36 billion dollars. And that's the amount of orders that UBS's deal received when they first came to the market, which is unheard of by any bond standards, really. So um, this has showed that demand was there. People were waiting to buy at the right price. They were just waiting for the right time. And UBS came, gave people this extraordinary number, which emboldened other banks to come through. So we had other banks from Barclays, Santander, coming to the market as well. And the response was very similar. Billions of dollars of orders placed again for these bonds that people thought they were dead uh, earlier this year. Yeah, absolutely. It's so different from the start of the year. I mean, we remember reporting on the Swiss authorities imposing the losses on Credit Suisse bondholders. I mean, it was it was um, quite kind of tense that moment, wasn't it? it? There was a lot of reporting around what was going to happen to Credit Suisse bondholders. So how is it so different to earlier this year? Well, actually, I remember people saying that the 81 market is dead. And just really quickly, that market was introduced out of the global financial crisis. We had other iterations of weird bonds back in the day in order to provide capital for banks. But during the global financial crisis around Lehman Burstons, they failed to uh, shield um, taxpayers. Taxpayers were on the hook for that. So um, the global minds came together and said, let's create a new bond, 81. And that's it. We don't need to create anything else. Credit Suisse came up and people thought, well, that failed as well. We need to come up with something else. So for three months, you actually had no issues in the market. Then you started seeing banks coming back uh, and people were getting more uh, comfortable that Credit Suisse was a one-off related just to this bank and not to this type of bond. But you needed a splash out there. And ironically, that came from UBS, uh, which comes from a jurisdiction where people said, I don't like Switzerland anymore from what the for what they you know, imposed to me back in March. And to see that kind of demand for that, it just, as you as said before, just ends the cycle that began in March. Why does all this matter to banks then, Tassos? Well, it's because uh, regulators impose capital requirements to banks, so they have to hold some money aside in order to, you know, just to cover some sour um, trade, like uh, loans. Uh, so in order to do that, they can use equity. 
uh, or they can use what what people call weird stuff. Weird stuff can be, for example, additional tier one bonds. These tend to be cheaper than equities, so profitability of a bank gets a boost on the basis of that. If they can't use it, if they can't use AT1 and they can only use equity, then the cost of capital becomes higher, profitability goes lower, and that, you know, that could have adverse effects for the economy as a whole if sustained over a long period of time. So the fact mm. that 81 are back and people are buying it is actually quite good for the banks. Mm, okay, that's interesting about why it matters to banks then. So then, is there another risk, though, of a Credit Suisse-style wipeout happening? I mean, I suppose there's always the risk of it happening, but what, what do investors think about it? Well, there's also the interminable um, experience in the market. Something bad happens. We do everything to fix it. And then something else that is bad happens mm. in the future that was unexpected. And it feels that we are heading towards that direction as well. So the thing that triggered the losses and people in $17 billion of Credit Suisse bonds went up in smoke and are never coming back is a feature called permanent try-down. That is something that people hated. They were stung back in March. They asked UBS to remove it. UBS took steps to remove it. Um, and the, the, nobody else has a permanent write-down out there in the market. So the thing is that if we see another Credit Suisse permanent write-down style loss, no. The problem is that we can see something else that's unexpected. And the 81 bonds have so many levers out there, so many features that you don't, you're never really sure where you're going to get hit. Um, so that is that is uh, the the the, you know, the main risk in the market. Whether a bank is going to fail in Europe, among big banks, people say no, at least not in the near term. Maybe um, people are looking at the mid-sized and smaller banks. But yeah, that's the that's the main risk in the market as always. Uh, we're stung by Credit Suisse. Nobody expects another exact example like Credit Suisse, but something else may come in the future. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Europe, your morning brief on the stories making news from London to Wall Street and beyond. Look for us on your podcast feed every morning on Apple, Spotify and anywhere else you get your podcasts. You can also listen live each morning on London DAB Radio, the Bloomberg Business app and Bloomberg.com. Our flagship New York station is also available on your Amazon Alexa devices. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Join us again tomorrow morning for all the news you need to start your day, right here on Bloomberg Daybreak Europe. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.